Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Zach Lucas McCarthy Dering. Um, welcome back to this second uh, sort of the double header on the governance and succession program. Um, as usual, I'll just run through um, what's ahead in terms of the series and as well as what's ahead in terms of today. So in terms of the series, next week, the 2nd of September, which is again Wednesday, uh, we will have the regional, the beginnings of the regional talks. And uh, this will take in uh, legally in sort of counsel from India and Indonesia, so senior councils. And we will also invite uh, MAS to once again join us and that will be uh, Spencer Sue will again join. Now, in terms of regional talks, you can look at your chat and you'll find a link to uh, how you can register for that if you haven't already registered for the entire series. And, and just to reiterate, when it comes to these regional talks, uh, the idea behind it is senior council is able to describe the business family dynamics within their relevant jurisdiction, uh, whether it's a first generation, predominantly second generation or third generation, and what do the families typically do in terms of their succession planning and the difficulties that they've encountered. And from an India and Indonesian standpoint, quite uh, sort of diametrically opposed views on how things are going to go for the business families in those regions. And then we discuss the emergence of domestic uh, family offices and the demand for international family offices. And some interesting comments there from, from India Council, which will be interesting when we, when we air this, as well as obviously for the Indonesian Council. There's also an opportunity for uh, uh, sort of senior councils to engage in a discussion with um, Spencer from MES uh, to discuss some of the dynamics that their families would need from their respective markets in order to progress use of uh, the Singapore single family office. So very insightful, um, very good stuff for uh, learning what the region's doing in terms of business family succession, as well as uh, the demands for family offices and in particular the demands for international family offices established in Singapore. In terms of program generally, we'll, we'll obviously have India and Indonesia, and that's followed by Philippines and Japan uh, a week later, and then we take a, a break and then come back with Malaysia and Thailand. Again, all headed by senior councils, all discussing the dynamics of their markets, and all of them joined by MAS, uh, so that we can discuss how uh, the single family office in Singapore can be better utilized in the future if there is any sort of difficulties at the moment. And then we wind up the entire series on the 24th of September with looking in depth at the single family office. And here we'll be inviting um, uh, further participants and there'll be some announcements on who else is coming in on those final, uh, that final session. Uh, today is obviously following on from yesterday. And yesterday was setting the scene, uh, setting out what the families are faced with and then culminating on the need for education, the need for families to take action at an early stage in order to help the next generation uh, pass through um, effectively as a team. Today is different. Today is more about the nuts and bolts of solving the problem. And I'm joined today uh, by Jennifer Chi, partner PK Wong and Naya, um, obviously myself, and Uso Mi, uh, executive director at BDO Tax Advisory. And these are the panelists today. Uh, running through and I'll just um, go, go through the agenda and how we're going to split this up. So for today, uh, shareholder succession, Jennifer and I will kick off and, and discuss some of the, the ways in which uh, the shareholders, if the family is committed to doing succession through a, a company, how this will manifest when looking at shareholder arrangements as well as uh, class rights or the uh, M&As. I'll then talk briefly about trust succession, if the family opted to look at a trust 
for transmission of their uh, sort of family business or their family office and some of the more specialist trusts that can be used in this area. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll actually culminate all of this with assuming taking us through a practical um, example of how you can get a project going and the, some of the difficulties that the families encounter in trying to get one of these governance projects um, off the ground. So today we'll just run through the shareholder succession, trust succession, and then getting started, which is a more practical side, which Sumi will help us through. Okay, so looking at corporate succession, and we'll reintroduce the diagram that was used uh, uh, yesterday. And here is a simple second generation business shareholders. And we're looking at the company, the directors, the executive management, and then obviously the employees and the operations. We'll reintroduce the, uh, the governance framework, which is the real reference point of the families running through the principal issues that they'll have to face if they opt to use a company succession uh, vehicle or to use their shares as the principal succession mechanism through which they will uh, transpose the business across generations. Now, in terms of the principal documents that we will be looking at, it's basically two. It's the shareholder agreement and then it's the actual constitutional document or what we'll call in today's talk the MAs, the Memorandum and Articles. I know that's quite anarchic uh, now, so that we do talk about constitutions, but I want to use MAs to not confuse it with a family constitution or a family charter. So these are the principal documents. So the main attributes of a shareholder agreement, for those of you who are not familiar with these documents, is it's a contract between the shareholders from time to time. It's a confidential document, doesn't need to be filed. And it's not multi-generational because contracts can't bind um, people in the future. With respect to a corporate constitution or MAs, that's a statutory contract. Uh, it's a public document that you can freely obtain, and it does go multi-generational because it applies to any shareholder from time to time. And that's broadly the distinction between the two. And the reason why I mention this is it, it makes it has a bearing on where we will put the particular provisions going forward, because uh, some of it obviously is more um, relevant to a shareholder arrangement and others are more relevant to an M&A amendment or a special class right. So looking at control, and if you recall from yesterday, this is all about how we can practically control the company going forward. And in, in terms of how we're discussing it today, we're really going to go through what's the default position in Singapore at the moment. So if you, what's the default position under the corporate laws and what's the default position if you just took a, a sort of precedent M&As from a, a registered agent. So without any bespoke drafting. These are the questions that I'll run through and I'll, I'll just list them first and then I'll invite uh, Jennifer to share with us some of the answers. So how are directors appointed um, under the model M&As that are uh, typically used in Singapore and under corporate law? What's the status of a nominee director? Um, because we have that concept under, under Singapore law. And um, can we allow each shareholder to appoint and remove a director? And this is quite important because when we have second generation members going forward, almost all of them are minority shareholders. So how can we effectively um, have each member appoint their own director as a control mechanism? Can we provide detailed director qualification criteria? If we can, where does that go? Where's the best place for it? And the entrenchment. When I use this term entrenchment, I mean it can't be changed. So no matter who the shareholders are from time to time, is it possible for the founder to put provisions into an M&A or into a share agreement that basically is entrenched and never be changed? 
So what I'll do is invite uh, Jennifer just to help us through with the, the first one. How are directors typically appointed under the model M&As uh, and corporate law in Singapore? There are two ways in which a director gets appointed to the board. The first way is when you, sub when you come in at incorporation stage. So the initial directors are appointed during the process of incorporation without requiring any, um, any shareholder approval. Um, the next stage is when you follow the procedures under the memorandum and articles of association in appointing the new directors. The most common provisions really are that the existing board, which is vested under our law with the management on a day-to-day -day basis of the company, the existing directors will appoint a new director um, by way of an ordinary resolution or a simple majority resolution. Okay, and, and is it the case that when we originally have the company come in, we'll have a board appointed, but is it fairly easy for amendments to be made or for directors to be removed in future? What's the precision there? Because once we've got the company up and incorporated, and many of the family offices will have been incorporated with just general M&As, once we have the original incumbent team of directors, how difficult is it to then replace them? It's actually quite tricky, quite difficult. It's easy, it's easy to, to get into the board. And once you're in the board, um, if, if you rely on just the law, it's gonna be quite difficult to remove somebody from the board if they don't resign. Um, we've done cases where a 90% shareholder had no board representation and the 10% shareholder was effectively the entire board of directors. And for the 90% shareholder to remove the one sole director and, and appoint their own uh, nominee, they would have to go through quite a convoluted and torturous procedure under the Companies Act because they would have to uh, requisition for a extraordinary general meeting to be held and the requisition goes to the board of directors. The board of directors will have to convene an extra, extraordinary general meeting and if they don't want to cooperate, then the shareholders will have to I guess spontaneously hold uh, extraordinary general meeting, purport to have a general meeting and purport to appoint their own directors to the board and remove this director. The problem with that whole scenario is that under our law, the board manages the company. The shareholders do not manage the company. So for the shareholders to have held a spontaneous meeting, it means that there is a procedural irregularity in the way the appointments of their own directors occurred and in the way they removed the director they did not want. And that procedural irregularity can be fought out, can be disputed in court, which is probably, as far as company law is concerned, um, the worst, one of the worst case scenarios because everything comes out in public and um, everything plays out uh, with the potential of making it to the news. Right, right, right. So, the, I mean, the warning here, the clear lesson learned is, um, if you have valuable clients who are doing family offices or if they have their own 
um, sort of legacy Singapore company, you really need to revisit some of these um, provisions, particularly when you are um, prepping for the next generation to go in, because the incumbency of the existing directors could cause a, a problem in terms of trying to easily turn them over. Okay. That's right. That's right. I agree. Because you see, even when we start up um, relatively simple companies with low capital, the first thing that we discuss coming out of the discussion, coming out of the negotiation is how we're going to structure a simple shareholders agreement between the parties to deal with exactly these issues. Yeah. If you leave it to the general law, um, there is extremely little protection, extremely little protection. I mean, a lot of people feel that the Companies Act provides a wide range of protections, which it does, but with regard to more specific commercial issues that um, like who appoints a director, who removes a director, who controls the money of the company, that, that actually has to be dealt with by way of a private contract. Otherwise, you're, you're, just, you're just looking to sort everything out in court. Right, right. Okay. Speaking. And in terms of these nominee directors, do they actually owe obligations to their nominator or do they actually owe obligations, fiduciary obligations, to the company and the shareholders at large? This has always been a, a tricky one. Are they actually true nominees only looking out for the shareholder that appointed them? Okay, our law treats every director the same with very minimal exceptions. So when we talk about nominee, share, nominee directors here, I take it you mean that uh, a, a nominee director is somebody whom a shareholder appoints to represent their interests on the board of the company, right? Now, if, if that is the case, then the law recognizes that that director can, from time to time, act in the interests of the shareholder that appointed them. That's nothing wrong with that, except if it conflicts with the commercial interests of the company in which he is a director. Right. Because the commercial interests of the company come first, and a director will have to take steps to avoid a conflict of interest. Right, right. And in terms of the appointment removal of directors by each shareholder, notwithstanding that they are uh, minority holders, and providing detailed rules for the criteria that the directors have to satisfy in order to qualify. Where would we put this? Would we generally put this into the M&As or would this be a shareholder agreement provision? How would you generally structure this? I would say that if you put it into the M&As, it's much more entrenched, right? It's more difficult to remove because the M&As represent a contract that binds the company the directors and the shareholders, even if they haven't signed it, as long as they take on these respective roles, they are bound by the provisions of the M&A. Whereas the shareholders agreement is a private document that binds only its signatories. The difference, however, between the shareholder agreement and the M&A is that um, for a nominal fee, you could get a copy of everybody's M&A. You could get a copy of anyone's M&A. So it's a public document that anyone can read through at their leisure for any number of reasons. Whereas the shareholders agreement doesn't need to be filed as a public document. So it remains completely private. 
balance if you have a lot more things that you need to say about pre-qualifications of directors particularly where it involves family members then our view is it really ought to be found in a shareholders agreement by whatever name you call it really i mean as long as it's a legally binding contract between the shareholders of the company uh, that's where it should be found right and then just a final point on this one when i use the word entrenched i mean something in the MAs where we provide that no member may remove or amend the M&As, regardless of whether they're 100% shareholder or they're 100% of the board. Is it possible under Singapore law to entrench provisions that can never be changed, no matter who the shareholders are from time to time? It used to be possible. Um, when we split our M&As into Memorandum of Association and Articles of Association. So if you put something in the Memorandum of Association, um, it was technically impossible to remove under Singapore law because our companies act simply didn't have any provisions for removing um, some kind of random clause. It removed clauses by category. Put in something that wasn't in any of the categories, it could actually never be taken out. But now that our law has combined the Memorandum of Association and the Articles of Association into one document, right, one document, now everything can be changed. Right. Um, even if you did require the consent of all the members, everything is still changeable. Right, right. Okay, all right. So we move on to um, uh, looking at what the um, sort of objects of a company are. In terms of Singapore, um, law, um, is, do we have a default objects that the company can effectively pursue any activities at all? Um, and if it, if it is the case, can we restrict this? And where would be the best, best place to restrict the, the object? So do we basically inherit an unlimited company in terms of its activities? And if it is, how, how do we restrict it back to only defined activities going forward? Okay. The, that's an interesting question, Zach, and it's a tricky one. Because the model M&As from uh, back in the day, they actually had to have every object of the company listed out. But now, every company in Singapore is established to be able to provide any kind of service, right. any kind of business. So, um, in order to restrict it, um, in order to restrict it and properly bind the shareholders, I think the most efficient place to put it would be in um, the shareholders, a shareholders agreement. Right, right, okay. Okay, and then looking at participation, this is about directors, this is about um, members being employed by the, uh, by the business. Um, can we provide, and this is a, a topical issue, that only family members um, can be shareholders um, can you briefly explain what is a preemption right and uh, how does preemption rights apply, sort of default preemption rights, uh, apply on a new uh, share issue or transmission on death? And crucially, can directors, do directors have a discretion to reject any share transfer um, in, in their absolute discretion? And then finally, can we implement a detailed family employment policy? And if we can, where does this, this policy actually go? So kicking off with, can we actually say only family shareholders, there, there cannot be outsiders, and how do we practically um, achieve that using the preemptions and the director's discretion to refuse 
to um, register members who are not family members? Um, the, the good thing about our company's law is that all of this is possible. You can restrict participation in, in shares, in equity, any equity of the company to people who are within the direct bloodlines or who are married into the family. You can do that. Um, but you will have to make certain modifications to either the standard form of the M&A or in a shareholders agreement, or you specify everything in the shareholders agreement. So the standard form of M&A that we use in Singapore will provide for rights of first refusal to existing shareholders, which is also called the preemption right. Um, to, but that's only for existing shareholders. And usually, un, or rather unusually, mm. provides for this right of refusal to only apply in connection with share transfers rather than new share issues. Right. It definitely doesn't apply on transmission upon the death of a shareholder because transmission upon the death of the shareholder indicates, well, look, it's supposed to pass to whoever he specifies in his or her will or if they died without a will, then it will follow our Intestate Succession Act or its equivalent law in any other country. Right. But transmission on death hardly ever has any preemption rights, unless you specify it. So everything needs to be spelled out right. very clearly. The good news is it can be spelled out, yeah. but the bad news is it has to be spelled out very clearly. And I think... In this case, the best place to spell it out would be the Memorandum and Articles of Association. Sorry right. for the dog barking. It's okay. So in terms of the director's discretion to re reject the registration of a, um, of a share transfer, um, the, the case I'm thinking of here is that the shareholder has to sign or adhere to a shareholder's agreement and that the shareholder does not want to do that, and the directors are saying, we won't register your share transfer unless you adhere to the shareholder agreement. And we have the discretion to reject your, um, your application to be registered as a shareholder. So how does that work in practice in terms of the director's discretion? Do they just have total discretion to reject any share transfer? I think the problem with the director's discretion to reject share transfers if, is if you don't specify how they are to exercise their discretion, then you'll have a problem for the directors. You create a problem. You basically kick the can down the road for right. the directors to deal with because um, if they exercise their discretion, um, oftentimes there is a requirement to exercise their discretion reasonably. Right. So they, if they were to reject the registration of a share transfer, that means that the person whose, whose shares are to be transferred will never, um, will never lose their legal and beneficial title in respect of those shares. They only lose the beneficial title. The transferee will have the beneficial title but not the legal title, which is always a, a, a fat problem because um, especially we're dealing with um, transmission on death because the estate is stuck the executor is stuck with the legal title and the beneficial title has already passed. So what needs to be done in this particular case is we need to actually specify the basis on which directors are to exercise their discretion. So if you were to say that the directors are only required to accept 
and approve transfers of shares to um, bloodline family members or to family members by marriage, then that's very clear. They can exercise their discretion to reject registration and provide the facts for the rejection. And if they do it that way, it's going to be virtually impossible to, to argue. Right. The person right. should still be registered. Right. And, and in terms of the family employment policy, presumably that should go in the shareholders agreement because of the sensitivity or what, what would you yes. say is best practice? Unless parties are willing for the family employment policy to become a public document hmm. um, for all and sundry, they should actually put it into the shareholders agreement or a private binding legal document. Right, right, got it. And in terms of benefits, so this is all about extracting value from the company. Uh, director's discretion to declare dividends, can we provide automatic distribution provisions? So to take away a level of discretion, um, where would we do this, M&As or shareholder agreements? And can we implement a detailed director executive remuneration policy? And again, M&As or shareholder agreements. So can we effectively override the director's discretion to, um, to basically uh, accumulate income in the company and provide the, provided the mechanisms in place, they have to make a distribution. Mm, actually, the, the interesting thing about dividends is that it's really open, it's really greenfield. When you set up a company, how you declare and distribute the money that's um, the profits of the company mm. are really up to the parties to describe for themselves. So if you use a standard M&A, then it's entirely up to the directors. So right. all the directors need to be satisfied about is that the company has profits available for distribution. Where the company has profits available for distribution, they don't actually have any obligation to distribute all of it. They can distribute right. none of it for years, okay. for, right? Um, or they can distribute all of it all the time. Mm -hmm. But if you want a steady stream of income, then it really needs to be spelled out. Right. It can be spelled out in the uh, M&A, but because that's financially sensitive, you might want to spell it out in a private document like yes. a shareholders agreement. Right. And in terms of the uh, director's sort of uh, remuneration policy, obviously one of the big worries in family businesses and, and, uh, and I dare say in family offices as we go forward in time is excessive remuneration and the way in which we can bring in a policy to stop that happening so that we, we can, you know, preventatively or dissuasively um, uh, police this. How, how do we tackle that problem? There are two ways to, um, to deal with it. First of all, when you have executive or non-executive directors sign onto the board, they should actually sign uh, some kind of uh, document with the company. Most often they want a director's indemnity from the company so that anything that they do in the proper discharge of their duties, uh, if they are sued for it, if they suffer any losses or penalties, they can actually recover their losses. So it can be inserted into that particular document. Um, failing which, because directors are hardly ever parties to the shareholders agreement, um, there should be a director's remuneration policy appended to the shareholders agreement. Right, so right. The shareholders would never approve um, 
compensation to the directors, which exceeds the terms of the policy, failing right. there would be contractual remedies against them. And the reason why it would be a shareholders matter is because uh, directors' compensation, directors' remuneration, if it is outside of a salary, we don't categorize it as a salary, but it's some additional compensation, mm. that's subject to shareholder approvals. Right, right, okay. And then looking at abuse, um, here it's really about minority protection. So this is about the majority shareholders ganging up on the minority shareholder and what, what help is there available to the minority uh, shareholder and what's the basis on which they can actually seek help. So the, the first question is, what's the key minority shareholder protections that are already embedded into Singapore corporate law? Uh, and in terms of minority shareholder remedies, um, can you explain uh, the basis of the minority oppression and just and equitable winding up remedies? Mm. Right, right, right. I think the issue that we have really with minorities is that our law has got very clear-cut lines for what is a minority. Mm. So if you hold 25% um, of, of the voting equity in the company, mm. then you are actually a minority whose vote will be required in um, a set number of scenarios under the company law. Okay. And this is if you don't have a shareholders agreement in place, what do you have? What power do you have as a 25% shareholder of a company? It's the power to, to block any um, variation in class rights in respect of shares, any capital reduction, mm -hmm. any change in name of the company, um, that kind of thing. But it doesn't deal with the money, really. Our, our, I think our biggest problem is commercial lawyers is when parties choose to rely on the general law, they, they can't actually take control of, for example, the bank accounts of the company. They can't become signatory of the company. I mean, all this, they should have provided for it contractually. They should have gotten their rights contractually because otherwise the law doesn't give it to them. Right. Who owns less than 25%, you can imagine if the 25% had so little power under our law, anyone who holds less than 25% would have basically um, an asset they can't do anything with. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to, to embellish on the minority oppression, Justin Echter winding up, the context of this question probably is better um, expanded by the use of family constitutions and charters. And I'll ask the same, same question again. And the reason why I'm asking it is, um, there is obviously a great deal of interest in drafting family constitutions and family charters. And a well-drafted charter will mention at specific points where a particular family agreement ought to express itself as a, a shareholder agreement or as an amendment to the M&As. But if it's not well-drafted, and in particular, if it's not being drafted by someone that's, let's say, professionally qualified, is there a risk that the family constitution can find its way into the courts in the context of a shareholder fight over what was actually agreed? And the, the, the family constitution is used in evidence of this is why I'm being minority oppressed in this business. Is that possible? That's possible. I think. 
biggest issue with the family constitution is that it looks like a really good, a very nicely tailored document, um, which a very nicely tailored shareholders agreement for family run companies is beautiful. But right in the beginning of this document in section four, it says that this document is not legally binding which makes me wonder what's the point of all the words after that, because if this document is not legally binding, um, everything that's said after that, it's, it's got some evidentiary effect, mm. um, but it will come in in the worst possible time, because you see, if it's not legally binding, then the, uh, um, then what do the parties have? The parties will have the M&A, they may or may not have a shareholders agreement, and then they'll have the family constitution and the company law. The mm. company law will apply regardless. Yeah. The they will apply regardless. Mm. Family constitution will um, give priority to these other documents when it comes to interpretation of the hard rights. Who gets to appoint directors? Who gets to be on the board? You know, right. and all that, every, everything else, yeah. and how we distribute dividends. The worst case scenario is when everything goes sour and somebody files a claim for minority oppression. Yeah. Family constitution will come in as evidence of what is the commercial agreement between the parties. Right. But at the worst possible time, because everything would have been, you know, the parties would be airing their laundry in public at that point in time. And the family constitution is going to come out as part of the documents submitted into evidence yeah. and everyone gets to read it. Yes, I mean, I think just the final point on this from a, a, a sort of UK company law perspective, and I think this would be fair to say a Commonwealth company law perspective, certainly the, the way in which the judiciary are, are moving is if the parties spend sufficient amount of resources and time uh, tailor-making their M&As and their shareholder agreements, then there is less scope to import in the family constitution as an overlay interpretive document. So what we've got obviously some judicial authority that says the more sophisticated the family is legally, the less the court will want to look at a family constitution to fill in the gaps because they've already accepted that the family are, have been properly and professionally advised and they're working within the legal environment to express that through either shareholder arrangements or M&As. I know that when we discussed this previously, Jennifer, that there hasn't been a case yet in Singapore that we are aware of where a family constitution was uh, effectively used in aid and evidence of a minority oppression claim. Is that, is that right? Uh, yes, that is right because I, I think by and large when cases are heard in Singapore, not all of them are published. The only ones that are published is where they have a written judgment and the written judgment was produced, would have been produced at the request of the parties in anticipation of an appeal. Right, right. Okay. All right. So let, let's leave the, um, the, the, the company aspects there for the moment. I'm going to transition now into the trust succession and I'll run through quite briefly the areas that I, I think are, are relevant and I'll look at in terms of the agenda, reserve power trusts, look at private trust companies, and then some of these specialist trusts, the governance trust or a voting trust, and this enforcer trust. And as I say, I'll go through it um, relatively quickly and in summary fashion only. But what I'm trying to bring to bear is the issue around if a family are moving 
uh, are, are looking as though they want to adopt a trust solution for their governance and succession issues, then these are some of the considerations they'll need to have in hand. And, or if they're already in a trust um, uh, structure, they may wish to then obviously review whether or not the trust structure is fit for purpose, given the context of them uh, trying to transition a business and not a uh, investment company. So reserve power trust, simple diagram. Um, we've got obviously uh, the family trust, sorry, and we've got beneficiaries along the side and they are, the trust owns the, 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 the shares and we've got the usual board of directors, etc. Principal documents when you're dealing with a trust is letter of wish and the backing law. And it's quite important that in this case, I've put Singapore as the backing law. Obviously, uh, a lot of trusts are used in Singapore that have foreign laws. So there'll be Jersey, Guernsey, Cayman Islands, BVI, et cetera. It's important that you take into consideration both the trust document itself, as well as the underlying backing law in the same way as you did with the company. And the other documents are obviously the, the backing law behind the, the company, uh, the M&As, and then the backing corporate law. And in this case, I've used Singapore Again, it's rather straightforward with the trust because it's the only shareholder of the company. So it doesn't, it means that some of the complications that Jennifer and I were discussing won't necessarily apply in a, in a context of a single shareholder in the guise of a trust. So we look at the, uh, the, the matrix again, the control, participation, benefit and abuse. And I'll just deal with two issues because we don't have enough time to go through everything. But the control and abuse, and here's some uh, sorts of suggestions. If we have a family trust, will likely our control mechanism will be uh, a trust protector committee and then we'll have directors of the underlying company. The protector committee will usually have powers to appoint and remove the directors of the underlying company and they'll do that by way of a direction to the trustee and then the protector committee itself um, ought to have appointment uh, provisions. Now the key thing when you're dealing with trusts is when you stand back, you have to have, if you're applying good corporate governance or good governance controls, is you have to look at whether or not it's established a, uh, a viable chain of accountability. So here are some of the consideration, detailed protector appointment removal provisions will need to be included. Consider whether protectors prohibited from also acting as directors. And the reason here is once you start to concentrate power, so the same person is occupying a protectorship and also the directorship, there is at that point, the oversight ceases because it's the same person. Consider rotating protectors with the directors. So you can have a family member that's in the office of protector, but they can't stay in directorship and then they rotate from time to time so that you have some level of supervision going on. And then enhance the beneficiary rights of information. Obviously, traditionally trusts, we've always tried to hide from our beneficiaries. Um, what I'm saying is when you're dealing with a, uh, an underlying operating business, you need a greater level of transparency in order to, to um, make sure that this system actually works cross-generationally. If you have a Bartlett provision, um, sorry if this, these are technical terms, but what Bartlett basically is, is a provision that says the trustee is not obliged to interfere or in any way supervise the underlying company's activities. You'll need to remove that in the context of a, a trust holding a business where you're trying to bring greater levels of transparency, the trustee's role will obviously be much more heightened in those circumstances. Now, just moving to a private trust company, again, a little bit more structured. Um, these are uh, horribly complicated structures to introduce to families and, you know, they, they can struggle quite considerably in understanding how to use them in practice. It's a two-stack system, so we have a purpose trust at the top, 
And then we have a family trust at the bottom and interposed is this private trust company. Now, from a control and abuse perspective, you'll have within the purpose trust an enforcer committee, and then you'll have the directors of the private trust company. And then finally, you'll have the directors of the underlying company. And this is the, the bit that I say on standing back and looking at the constitutional arrangements that you have. Here are the governance risks that can be engendered in this. The enforcer, PTC director and company directors can be all the same person. Um, if you have that going on, then there is effectively no chain of accountability built into the system. And this, this is a principal problem where if this is going to go cross-generationally in the future, the office of enforcer becomes the, the center point for the entire governance of this mechanism. The enforcer appointer, appointment provisions are critical to avoid this concentration uh, of, of power. Uh, include family trust. In terms of the, the family trust, include officer director rules at the family trust level. The officer director rules will govern the appointment removal and qualification of the directors of the underlying business. Now, because you've inserted these provisions within the family trust deed, what you're doing is stopping the private trust company from appointing anyone they like. So they have to filter through what the family trust is, is saying in terms of who may or may not be the directors and their qualifications. So it's a way of rebalancing the governance mechanism, otherwise than having it as a concentrated ownership. Again, the same, same process of enhancing the beneficiaries' rights of information. The beneficiaries are the last arbiter in terms of the accountability of these types of structures. If they are kept out of information, then you effectively choke off that mechanism until it gets so bad that they have to take uh, legal action. And then likewise, removal of the Barclay provisions to allow um, particularly the private trust company to be accountable for its um, uh, effective monitoring of the underlying business. Now, specialist trusts, there's, there's only two I'll mention here, not in any very good, great detail, but the reason why I include these in the talk is to make uh, sort of us aware that there is a, a distinction between us having only a trust solution that involves a PTC or reserve power um, trust or nothing. There are other uh, scenarios in which the, uh, the families can consider. Voting trusts uh, are, are one of them. Uh, they've been around and they're used particularly by US families for over 100 years. So these are uh, quite uh, sort of typical mechanisms that are used in, in North America. How does it work? You have the underlying family business and you have two classes of shares, economic and voting. What you have is the family holding the economic shares, but they pool all of the voting shares into a voting trust. What the result of that voting trust is that you're able to constitute a family council within the terms of the trustee, and that can control in a, in a much more coherent way the voting of the business in terms of its directors and all of the myriad of issues that can be uh, sort of governance issues that can come up within the context of a family business. So effectively, you're segregating the politics of voting into a controlled mechanism through a voting trust and allowing the family members free use of the economic shares and for them to dispose of it as they wish. And I think the, the, probably the Americans use this as a, as a handy device in order to separate those issues uh, and to, to bring some stability to the, um, the, the company's uh, constitutional arrangements. So that, that's a voting trust. And enforcer trust is a little bit more specialist. Uh, this, again, normal scenario, here's the company, here's the shares. What would an enforcer trust do? It would hold a small amount of shares, 
probably have some class rights, but what's its principal purpose? The principal purpose of the uh, sort of enforcer trust would be to uh, effectively entrench provisions in the MA. So if there were detailed provisions that the founders wish to include in the memorandum and articles of the company or the constitution of the company, then they can use one of these enforcer trusts as a way in which the, uh, the members from time to time are unable to vote a change, so they can entrench it in fact in law. The other way in which enforcer trusts can be used is as a mechanism uh, to police the uh, effective management of the company from time to time. It can have information, uh, enhanced information access rights, and it can also have the ability to bring legal actions and have funding for that going forward. So the enforcer trust is a it's like a miniature regulator for the family business going forward, and it's it's not used in a, a more grand way as a legacy structure going forward. Okay, so that was broadly just the, uh, the, the topics on the trust side. The main thing on this is to try and look at the trustees that we have in place. Um, the precedent documents are not prepared generally for family businesses. They're prepared for personal investment companies that have bank accounts and investables. You'll need to rework the trustee in order to make it more compliant with international standards for uh, sort of corporate and good governance. And that requires looking at each provision and bringing in more accountability and getting rid of provisions that are, make the structure more opaque and, uh, and uh, have the ability for the beneficiaries to actually understand more of what's going on. So that's the main principle, that sort of takeaway. At uh, this point, I will invite Sumi um, to, to uh, sort of begin her talk on um, the uh, governance project and, and, and getting the, the project started. Good afternoon, everyone. Family governance, what is it all about? It's about keeping wealth in the family. And about long-term wealth preservation. Going on to my first slide. Successful long-term wealth preservation requires the creation and maintenance of a system of governance to facilitate joint decision-making regarding the family wealth over a long period of time. And what sort of time frame we are talking about about 100 years and beyond the third generation. Wealth is not self-perpetuating. It can be dissipated if there is no planned stewardship, and it can be dissipated within one to two generations. There is this classic proverb that describes the phenomenon of fleeting family fortune, shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve in three generations, and in the Asian context, paddy field to paddy field in three generations. What is this? It is about first generation starting hard, toiling to build a family fortune. Second generation having a good life, receiving good education, living in luxurious home. And the third generation with an increased number of family members growing up in the lap of luxury, doing little or no work at all and spending away the fortune. And the fate of the fourth generation is back to poverty and toiling. Such rags to riches, riches to rag cycle is avoidable. This can be avoided if the family is determined and united in one mind to grow and preserve the family business, which is the wealth generating vehicle of the family. So long-term wealth preservation is about building a, a strong family governance, laying down different processes, a framework, 
and a plan to preserve family wealth and family business in the long term. Let me share some pointers about preservation of wealth. Very few families understood that wealth consists not only financial capital, but also the human and intellectual capital. Without active stewardship of these two capital, you cannot preserve the financial capital of the family. Hence, it is important to evaluate the increase and decrease in the human and intellectual capital. Family fails to understand that the fundamental issues of wealth preservation is qualitative, not quantitative, not about money only. Usually, wealth is measured by looking at the financial balance sheet. Families need to take into account the family's qualitative balance sheet to measure the extent that they can meet its wealth preservation mission and goals. What are some of the questions that the family should ask? For example, what are the age group of the family members? Now that people are living longer, maybe 25 years longer, this is good news as the family then can get an extra 25 years out of the human capital. Is the family nurturing the next gen to inherit the family wealth? Is there a deliberate plan for their education? Wealth preservation is dynamic. It is not a static process. Each generation of the family must think like a first generation, a wealth creation generation. Sadly, many family members who inherited family wealth have no idea how to create wealth. For a family to preserve wealth, it has to create wealth. Hence, the family has to think how to create new human and intellectual capital. Family cannot assume that there is one with creative instinct in every generation. What if there is none? The family has to recognize and accept the fact and seek professional to run and manage the business. Families often plan for the use of families, human and intellectual capital, if they plan at all, with too short a time frame. Time has been measured by generation. Otherwise, how the family can be sure that it is still in business in the fourth generation? Short term is 20 years, medium term is 50 years, long term is 100 years. Therefore, patience is a virtue here. To be in a state of doing nothing will lead to a state of decay. Why most families are not starting to think about family governance? A few reasons. One, they do not know how to start and they think it is too difficult because planning for family wealth preservation is for the long term, for the long haul and involves too many human factors and human issues. And it is not just about planning for this generation, but it has to be a process that literally must continue through all the generations to come. So most just throw up their hands and say, why bother? The other one is a simple one. Tell the family stories. Pass on success stories of predecessor and also stories of their struggle and failure because it is a learning point for the next younger generation. Family stories give family members a sense of unique history and values. 
I'd like to talk a little bit about family wealth because I talk about financial uh, capital and intellectual capital. Financial capital, we all know what that is. Family qualitative wealth, what does it consist of? It consists of human capital, which is the family members, as I mentioned earlier. It consists of intellectual capital, which is the knowledge gained through education and life experience. Social capital, what is this? This is about a family member's relationship with each other and their communities. No family can exist without some social capital. Some indicators of what this family, what this social capital is, is the family's care and thoughtfulness for each other, sharing decisions together, embracing new family members, helping each other, basically having the love and grace for each other. Without all this, how can a family come together to discuss and talk about family wealth preservation? How many families' wealth are wasted away because of legal suits against each other? Foundational capital. This is about families' ability to share and sustain each other's own interests and dreams. It is often expressed in time-honored traditions like uh, every Sunday have dinner together or celebrating some special family event, sharing of family successes and failure stories. Such expression promotes gratitude and humility in the family members. It's a recognition that the journey of a family's fortune is not obtained without hardship and without challenges. And these are, and how this, how the, the, uh, the founders actually overcome uh, all these challenges with tenacity and with sacrifices made by them and their family. Gratitude and humility are two important virtues to keep the family uh, flourishing. Now I'll go into the purpose and principle of family governance. And before I do that, I like to just uh, very uh, briefly describe what uh, a family governance framework, which uh, Zach has already, and also as well as uh, Jennifer has already uh, mentioned. Very briefly, uh, family governance is a framework to agree on family values, to make sure all are on the same page, the decision-making process regarding the family wealth and the discussion channel to make decisions together. The framework must align to the whole family dynamics in order to obtain family across the board's acceptance of the structure and this will achieve family's harmony. All this is for a common goal to preserve and grow family wealth. And this framework concerns every member of the family and every family member must agree and accept that. The principle behind every family governance is to work together as a family and with the family business to achieve the economic and emotional value, which is the financial capital and the qualitative capital value for the family. To this end, the framework of a robust family governance must establish ground rules to cover all aspects of wealth preservation 
and must be agreed and accepted by all members. The framework must be transparent and facilitates behaviour of the family member to comply with the ground rules. The framework must align with family values and vision, and that's very important. And communication amongst family members is very important, and hence there must be a strong structure on the channels of communication. And this is a framework that supports stability and continuity on the growth of the family wealth. So how do we get started on family governance? So far, what I've seen is for such a project is usually initiated by a family member who has witnessed family breakup or one who sees the importance of preservation of long-term wealth as he sees the family wealth grow. And this is more so, especially uh, the uh, gen newer generation are more educated and more well-read. This person can also be a founder or it could be a family member whom the founder will listen to, a natural leader, one who is regarded by the family as leading the family business. Regardless, it has to be a joint family decision and the shared motivation to preserve assets into the future generation. What next? Meetings, lots of meetings. There will be the first meeting to come together to reflect on family visions and value. This is important because they must come together and uh, come to a common ground on this. This meeting will also make sure that everyone is on the same page in their understanding of the importance, the purpose and the benefits of the family governance project and to agree on the family's value and system. It cannot be just the views of the founder alone. Further meetings will be about building the framework itself. Topics discussed will be regarding how the family assets can be used for individuals or family needs and family philanthropy. It will also include lots of interview with the whole family, with some of the family members, key stakeholders and individual family members. It is important to ensure that there is a formal process for each successive generation to reaffirm its acceptance of the family governance because it needs to go to from one generation to another. As the family governance framework must continue to apply all, across all generations, it is important to ensure that there is a process to allow changes to the rules and practices as the family evolves. As in all governance, there must be checks and balances to ensure that family, the family remains in control of the governance process. This is the stage where everything comes together, where the agreed framework will be set up. This is the stage where professionals, trustees, bankers are involved. It is about setting up a structure to support the governance, which was what uh, just now, uh, what Zach and Jennifer were sharing about. It is about, it, it, there will be more meetings. After all these meetings, a family constitution will be drawn up to document the framework, the processes and rules. And just as uh, Zach and Jennifer shared just now, this document has no legal enforcement. 
So rules regarding the distribution of assets upon death must be drawn up in will. And you have trust, fund company, family office, shareholders agreement, and everything else that Zach and Jennifer was talking about, were talking about to give, to be set up, to give effect to the framework, to lay down the rules in the constitution. The other thing that uh, will also be part of the setup is also about electing family council members who should be on the family council. How many sub-family committees? Is there one for next gen? Is there one for each family unit? All this will be decided. And this will all be expressed in the family constitution. Next, I want to share with you about the challenges I have seen in family governance project. Developing a family governance structure is a long and difficult journey. I have to say that when these discussions and meetings are many and long, likely more issues are opened up and resolved, and that is a good outcome. So some of these family governance projects is also a healing uh, journey for the family. Let me share some of the uh, challenges I have encountered. Founder unable to let go of the reins of the family business and wealth because he lacks trust that the next generation cannot manage or know how to run the business. And yet not realizing that until he lets go, the next generation has no chance to know or learn about the extent of the family's wealth, how to run the business, or what is the family business even all about. Or it could be that he only lets certain family members into the business and this leads to feelings of discontentment, unfairness, and creates, and creates discontentment and unfairness, as I've said, and lead to lack of trust. And all this will create undercurrent tensions that will get in the way of meaningful discussion. There could also be family members who have certain expectations from the family and are disillusioned because their expectations for the family are not being met because of perceived unequal treatments. I want to say families who hardly meet because they may not have a reason to do so before finds themselves meeting often to discuss topics that can be difficult. They begin to hear each other's concerns, issues, and these are being shared. And if there is enough love in the family, the issue surface will be resolved. Hence, I would say, though it is a long journey, but it can be one that heals and binds the family together. So how do we overcome these challenges? There's only one way, take the bull by its horns. Talk to the founder, because the founder could be the problem, could be the source of the problem, may not be the only problem. Talk to the founder who wields the power and the power and, and usually if the founder is uh, promoting this project, um, the others will listen to him because he has the power, which is the money. And so, you know, the others will listen and also talk to the influencer who who is really the person that uh, the founder will listen to 
uh, seek professional help from counsellors. Some relationships are so bad that a professional counselling needs to get needs to be involved to resolve the issue. And where there is some issues or discontentment, dissatisfaction about the way business is run, a business advisor may have to be hired to give uh, his uh, or her expertise opinion. More family meetings are needed uh, to, and this is something that a family has to accept. You just need to keep and keep on meeting until the matters are resolved. And at each of these meetings, it has to be emphasized that the importance of this project to preserve the family wealth beyond their generation. Family meetings uh, usually, especially when it is difficult, should be facilitated by a non-family advisor. This will help to uh, make the meeting uh, much smoother and will get decisions uh, faster on the governance framework. Family must understand that only when they are united in purpose and plan that wealth can preserve and grow. As you can see, much is about conversation, counselling and meetings. I will therefore, in my next slide, give some pointers about family meetings. Family meetings is an important tool to help family to build the family governance structure. To grow is complete wealth. Complete wealth refers here to financial and the qualitative wealth, uh, capital. How successful are these meetings will affect the time it takes to complete the project. Well-run family meetings serve three purposes. It keeps the family connected. It helps the family to continuously learn about their wealth, about their business, about each other. It, also, it is also a, a place where important decisions are made together. Successful family meeting is one that has clear and defined agenda like all meetings. And it must have appropriate participants at the meeting. For example, if it is about business development into the next generation or into the future generation, it must include the next gen or their representative. If it is about education of the children, their wives, the children's mothers have to be involved. Right time and right venue takes into consideration the convenience for all members, especially during children exam period, and the venue must be convenient for all family members. And if there are children involved, have to consider childcare facilities so that the adults are able to focus in the meeting. And most of the time, a business advisor uh, should be uh, hired to facilitate this meeting, especially in the first few meetings of the family. This is, this is the continued annual meeting that I'm talking about. I'd like to say something about family business continuity plan meeting, because such meeting usually are more difficult than anything else and any other topics. 
Generally, where family wealth and business is still held in the hands of the founders, there could be no concrete succession plan or none at all. This can be a very serious lack, as if the founder, for whatever reason, can no longer be at the helm of the business, the rest of the family may be at a loss as to how they should continue the business. They may not even be sure if they should continue with the business, and if they want to, they may not be sure or they may not know how to do so. And as such, the business could be thrown into a limbo. Or if they want to exit the business, how should this be done? Do they sell? Do they transfer? There could also be a situation where the founder with significant wealth is like a sun shining upon the family members, providing for the family's every need, giving them a sense of belonging and importance. This all sounds very well and nice, but the younger or rising generation may feel that they do not have their own sense of identity and are unable to pursue their dreams. This can create a negative attitude towards the family business that may affect their view with regard to the, con to the continuity plan of the family business. In some cases, the founder may hand over the business to only certain family members, but there was no, communi no communication as to why he made that decision. This then will be perceived by other family members as favoritism and that the appointment is not based on competency. I share some difficulties encountered in such discussion. Mainly such difficulties in discussion arose from differences in perspective of individual family members in the meeting. In a meeting where we have different age groups and across different generations, this may affect participation in the meeting and causes uh, alienation. This can cause uh, difficulty to align the different family members in planning business succession, lack of knowledge of business and operation, makes it impossible, make, makes it impossible for the members to effectively participate in the discussion. Different upbringing gives rise to different perspective from individual members on how the family business is to be run. These differences becomes more apparent when the, in, when the meetings involve two or more generations. One common difficulty in such business discussion arise from a very simple question. Is the family for the business or is the business for the family? All these differences can be resolved by having meetings. Again, it's all about meetings meetings with facilitator to an advisor to resolve the differences and to align objectives. And during these meetings, there will also be learnings, there will be sharings. So to end my session, I'd like to just share what a family governance model look like. It's one with strong family, as well as business governance framework. The family governance will determine the council members and the different committee members for the different areas of the family wealth. Family wealth, I refer to the complete wealth, not just the financial wealth alone. All of this will be developed based on the family governance framework as set out in the family constitution. 
And I'd like to end my session and leave these words with you. Long-term wealth preservation is a journey of faith and courage for a family. It is like planting a forest of trees and never really knowing how the forest will ultimately be. And it is about every generation having to be a wealth creator. With this, I end my session. Thank you for listening. Thanks very much, Sumi. Um, I think we'll take some opportunity just to go through a couple of questions, not very many, um, because Jennifer has been busy answering most of the questions on the, the corporate side in the meantime. So we, I think we've only got one that is probably relevant, which is, um, will an insurance policy help to tighten the structure? I think um, that if that's aimed at a, uh, a corporate scenario, then I think the use of insurance could help with funding a buyback of shares. And I think that, that's probably one that we can discuss, um, Jennifer. In terms of a buyback of shares, where we have members that really are not interested to be in a family business or they're not interested to be in the, uh, the family office environment, they want to cash out. Is there a way in which they can effectively do that by way of a share buyback from the company? And I think insurance would probably be quite useful to, um, to, to bring some solvency to this. Do you have any views on that? I think a share buyback could be a good idea, actually. But it does mean that, um, from what I understand, once they exit, the whole line of, I mean, their yeah. own. The whole step out, of the line right? of family members will probably have to be completely out of any further succession. So they'll yeah. impact every generation that follows them if they cash but out completely. I think the beauty of our equity our equity rules under our company law is that you could for example if you wanted to pull out some profits you could issue a different class of shares like so everybody could start off with preference shares and then you could issue um sorry everybody could start off with ordinary shares and then you could issue preference a to this person preference b to that person and so on and so forth right so you use up all the alphabet letters for the preference shares and then you can redeem the preference shares but leave the ordinary shares untouched so that they can pass down from generation to generation but at the same time you draw out your profits by way of redemption of the preference shares yeah i mean this is a good way to try and keep uh, family members motivated and one of the i think drawbacks of putting the entire mm. company into a trust is you have to wonder the family members that are still continuing within the business what what prospects do they have of enjoying capital appreciation um, or at least having distributions that match that so it's a tricky one for families to work out if they did have redeemable shares as well as a trust interest then that would be a very good way of incentivizing them to to push harder so i think some of these yes. are quite relevant so the crossover between doing smart ways of compensation using shares and having it uh, effectively custodized for future generations through a trust it just means they have to be quite clever about how doing how they want to do all these things yes it, and it doesn't need to be rocket science i mean they can just apply what the um what what is being done in commercial joint ventures yeah 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 okay 
All right, I think that's pretty much it. There's a, uh, on the, um, the chat, there's a link to the session next week, uh, in case anyone's not already got that. Um, and as always, I'll just end with this sort of admonition. Obviously, from, from all the practitioners that are on board of this, these are our sincere views, but they're not legal opinions, okay? So you shouldn't use anything that we've said in these webinars or these scenarios to, to then go away and do specific advice or to follow a specific train of thought. Um, it's always subject to specific advice going forward. So these are just generalized views that have been expressed today.